continuing through our journey through the book of Numbers. The theme of Numbers is obedience versus disobedience. And we've seen the nation of Israel and their disobedience. But now in chapter 20, we kind of see what happens when a leader disobeys and the price of that. The other title for the book of Numbers, better title really, is the book of Wanderings. And it shows us how Israel has wandered from Egypt through their journey to the promised land. Should have taken just a couple weeks, but instead it takes them 40 years. A key text before we turn to Numbers 20, you could keep your finger there. Now we jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Key text here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 6, and verse 11. Love it when Scripture makes it simple for us to decipher Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1 through 6, Paul tells us, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then in verse 11, it reads, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So again, all of this is an example to us. It's a, a type. That's the word you're going to hear a lot if you study these next two chapters is that we see types of Christ. And whenever you see types, it's not a kind of Christ. It's an example of him in the Old Testament. Right? You saw some of the couples playing with Plato there. Right? If you've ever played with Plato before, they're playing with clay, but looks like Plato. Right? They're playing with adult Plato there. If you ever played with Plato and you get a mold and you put the mold in the Plato, you reveal it and there's a type of the mold. If you have a wax and a signet ring and you squish that signet ring into the melted wax, you have a type of the signet ring. And that's what we're being shown here in Numbers 20 is that the rock is Christ. Open book test, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So we got to keep that in our mind as we journey through chapter 20. Now we go back to Numbers 20, verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Again, this sounds very familiar to lots of what we've already seen through the book of Numbers. 
the nation of Israel, the people, they begin to complain. And Moses and Aaron, they go to the presence of God there at the door of the tabernacle. And now they, they pray and intercede for the people. Numbers 20 has us fast forwarding here to now the 40th year of their wandering, of their wilderness journey. They've circled back to the same entrance of the promised land, the same entrance in Kadesh that we saw back in uh, Numbers 13. They're at the same exact place 38 years later. At this point, Miriam, she's 127 years old. Aaron, he's 123 years old. And Moses, being the baby of the family, is 120 years old at this point. They've gone through so much altogether. Perhaps Moses, he's had enough. Perhaps he's getting cranky with everything that's happened. But we can be reminded after the nation of Israel followed their lack of trust and faith in God, they're at the door of the promised land in Numbers 13, that later on in Numbers 14, God told them no one would enter the promised land except for Caleb and except for Joshua. No one else would enter the promised land. So now we have Miriam dying. Miriam's passing away. And this death toll, right? We talked about 144 people dropping dead every day. But now this death toll is starting to hit Moses close to home, where his own sister has passed away. Four months later, his brother Aaron will pass away. And sometimes God tells us things in scriptures, and we think we are going to be the exception to the rule. Has that ever happened to you in your life? Right? You think you're going to be the exception to the rule. Oftentimes it's when it has to deal with sin or pride or decision making, right? God tells us plain and simple, don't do this. This is what happens when you go into sin. I think I'll be able to get away with it, right? He who isolates himself rages against all wise counsel and seeks his own destruction. You know what? Maybe I'll be the anomaly, right? It happens to us, and perhaps even Moses thought he would be able to get into the promised land. Perhaps Miriam thought or Aaron thought, Lord, we've served you so faithfully. However, God said no one but Caleb and Joshua would get into the promised land. An incredible man that Moses was, we see no restraint in Moses' desire to lead God's people. We don't see Moses slowing down. We don't see any laziness in Moses. We're going to see him, his bad decisions, his biggest failure costs him the opportunity going into the promised land. And he doesn't quit. He doesn't throw in the towel. Because at the end of the day, Moses' identity was being a son to God the Father. And that's so important to each and every one of us. What is your identity tied into? Is it being a parent? Is it your job? Is it your hobby? Is it your health? Is it where you serve in church? Because our identities at its root, at its core, needs to be found in us being sons or daughters of God. And Moses, with his identity being tied into God saving him and freeing him, it didn't matter if he was no longer the leader of Israel. It didn't matter to him if he didn't get to see the promised land. All that mattered was that he got to continually taste of the presence of God. Verse 2, we see a problem. Israel had been here before earlier in Exodus. They had no water. And this is a severe problem, a severe crisis. And whenever we come to problems and crises in our lives, it reveals to us what's really at the core of our lives. It shows us what we're made out of when true pain and problems and crisis arise. 
It shows us if we're truly still faithful and praying the Lord's got it. Or if all of a sudden we're throwing everybody out of the way and we're running for the door, right? Because a crisis has happened. Many people talk about their training. Many people talk about, oh, I could fight so-and-so and so-and-so. And then the crisis happens and they're crying. They're in the fetal position. They're in the corner, right? And that's true for each and every one of us. In the problems of our life, we will see what we're made out of. And here, millions of people, at this point, this is the younger generation, they're acting just like their parents. They face a crisis, and yet they respond in a sinful way. They don't respond crying out to God. They don't respond pleading for God's help. They don't respond saying, Lord, you've provided water in the past by Moses striking a rock. Lord, can't you do that again? No, they respond in sin, complaining against Moses. They say that they're in this land where there's no vines, there's no fruit, there's nothing. And yet whose fault is it that the nation of Israel is still in the wilderness? Theirs is their fault. Their fault and the fault of their parents. We have to be careful that we're not blaming God and other people for our own bad decisions. Have you ever noticed we're so prone to doing that, right? We're in a terrible place in life, we're in a terrible rut, and we start blaming everybody else except the man or woman in the mirror. And here the nation of Israel, they're blaming Moses that they're not in the land flowing with milk and honey, and yet it's all their fault. It's all their own fault and the fault of their parents. We also see here that these little apples haven't fallen far from the tree, right? They're acting just like their parents. Even though most of them were probably only small children, when they were taken out of Egypt, they're still complaining about how great things were back in Egypt. Seems like they've picked up on their parents' favorite hobby in the wilderness, right? Whining and complaining, their favorite hobby. And this is a warning to us as parents. It's been said that children tend to follow the most carnal of the two parents, right? So for each and every one of us, are we leading our children by our example? And the answer to that is yes, whether it's your good example or your bad example. If we as parents are always complaining about how terrible things are, woe is me, the Lord this, America this, things are so bad, guess how our children are going to act? They're going to act the same way. May our kids follow our example of worshiping God, being men and women of faith, men and women of prayer, men and women of gratitude. When crises happen and when we react in sin, we begin to say and do crazy things, right? Not only are the children of Israel complaining, but now they're saying that it would have been better if they would have died already. It would have been better if we would have died with the sons of Korah when the earth swallowed them whole. It would have been better if we would have died with some of the people in the nation of Israel when the plague struck the whole camp. We have to be so careful. But truly the biggest problem here with the nation of Israel, it's not their lack of gratitude. It's not their bad attitude towards Moses. It's not their heart of complaining. Truly the biggest problem here that the nation of Israel was facing is that they had grown dull and complacent to the presence of God in their lives. Because what's around them at every waking moment? During the day, there's a pillar of cloud leading the nation of Israel. Right smack dab in the middle of the camp, the presence of God is there. What's there every night when they go to bed? A pillar of fire. The very presence of God is there, and they've grown completely dull and complacent to it. 
And this is one of the things that strikes me the hardest out of this passage. Have I grown dull and complacent to the presence of God? Where now I'm at the point of saying I was better off before I came to know the Lord. I was better off in that sinful relationship. I was better off in those drugs. I was better off in that previous lifestyle. It's a dangerous place to be, friend. We have the presence of God in our lives. We have access to it, a greater access to it than Moses or David or anyone in the Old Testament. And yet how much do I take it for granted? How often are we working, are we laboring to enter into that rest? How much discipline am I putting in my life to be there in the presence of God? To enjoy time with Him in the cool of the morning? We have to be so careful that we have not grown dull and taken the presence of God for granted. Because when we take his presence for granted, everything starts to fall apart. We begin to complain. Every crisis is the end of the world. Suicidal thoughts start coming in, right? Everything falls apart the moment we take for granted the presence of God. May we work on being freed from all these dumb little distractions in our lives and labor to enter into that rest with God and the incredible presence that he's blessed us with. Do you remember that first morning after you got saved? Being able to taste of the peace of God in your life? His presence there, the first times you opened your Bible, the first times you worshiped, do you remember what that was like? May we continue to go back there each and every morning, each and every night. Moses and Aaron in verse 6, they assume their normal crass positioning place, right? They're about to crash. They put their head in between their knees and they start praying on the floor, right? Uh, Joe Foe said, Moses and Aaron, you'll see them in heaven because they'll be the ones with flat noses, right? Because they always put their faces flat on the floor. They're here praying. They're truly men of God and they're interceding for the people. Verse 7, the Lord answers them right away. We see the presence of God come upon them and their prayers right away, just like all the other times. Then in verse 8, God tells Moses, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. This isn't Moses' first interaction with the rock when it comes to needing water for the nation of Israel. You can write down Exodus 17, verse 5 through 7. Here, the nation of Israel, they were at bitter waters. They weren't able to drink. So then God tells Moses, go and strike the rock. Go and strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. And God answers that prayer. God tells him what to do and that's exactly what happens. God had Moses strike the rock the first time, but now God is instructing Moses to only speak to the rock. And who is the rock? It's Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 10, for our key there. Then in verse 10, Moses, he begins, he obeys God, right? Verse 9, he goes and he takes the rod. This is the rod of Aaron that they had there in the tabernacle, the one that was budding with almond blossoms and fruit, right? Then in verse 10 and 11, it started off great. Moses, he takes the rod. Now he gathers the assembly together before the rock, and then everything goes downhill from there, right? He said to them, here now, you rebels, 
Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. Seems like no harm, no foul, right? Moses did whatever he wanted, whatever he felt like doing, and hey, water still came out of the rock. And it's always dangerous when we are representing God to someone else and we start our sentence off by name calling, right? It's a dangerous place to start. When we're representing God and we start off by here, now you rebels, right? It's a bad, bad place to start. Just close your mouth, take a time out, go and pray, and then come back, right? Moses was instructed to speak to the rock. But instead, he smacks the rock, right? And not only does he strike the rock once, like he did in Exodus, but now he smacks it twice. Almond blossoms flying everywhere, right? Almonds going all over the place, hitting people in the eye. And he was instructed to speak to the rock. He strikes the rock twice, and now he speaks to the people out of his anger, out of his just, he couldn't take it anymore, out of his frustration, Psalm 106, verse 32 and 33 give us some more insight to this. It tells us that they angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Again, Moses, he's about 120 years old at this point, still leading the people of God, still in the service of God. And we see in Scripture there's about six times where Moses blows it in his anger, right? Six times out of 120. I know I've joked saying that it seems like Moses has an anger problem. But I think Amanda would be pretty happy if I only blew it in anger once every 20 years, right? So I don't think Moses, it's fair to say he really has an anger problem if it's only once out of every 20 years that he would fail here. The problem continues for Moses when not only does he strike the rock with anger, not only does he speak to the people in anger calling them rebels, but then it really gets dangerous when Moses says, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Right, right there, God could have asked Moses, what do you mean by we, man, right? <laughs> do you got a frog in your robe? Are you speaking French? Right? What do you mean we here, Moses, right? Oftentimes when we're dealing with people, we can forget about who we once were. Oftentimes. Moses, he may have forgotten that in his zeal, and his anger trying to serve God, he killed the man, right? We can forget where God has brought us from and then we take it out on people when we're ministering to them and they just don't seem to get it. Right? Very few of us came to the Lord upon the first time hearing about the gospel. For many of us, it was once, twice, thrice, 10 times, 20 times, 40 times, 50 times. And yet when we're ministering to someone, if they don't get it once or twice, we can really respond to them in anger. The other problem for us is that sometimes we can take it personally. We have to be so careful in ministry when we're ministering to people that we don't take it personally. It seems as if Moses here has taken it personally. We know that Samuel and 1 Samuel, God has to tell Samuel, hey, stop taking it personally, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. And we have to be so careful. However, when we take credit for the work that God does, that's when we are in dangerous, dangerous territory. We are to take zero credit for the work that God does through our lives. 
Because that's when we open up footholds for the enemy and for our own pride to destroy us. God is the one that does the work. God is the one that builds his church. God is the one that appoints and elects who's going to be saved each and every day. It's not you or me. We throw seed, we water, we plant, we love. But at the end of the day, we are simply just vessels ready for the master's use. God, he pours into us that we would pour out into others. That's all that God does. We need to be so careful when we start thinking, I'm the one doing this thing. I'm the one bringing water out of a rock by hitting it or speaking to it, right? Absolute insanity. We have to be so careful when pride comes into our heart. Look who I've brought to church. Look how many people I've saved. Look at what I've done for the sake of Christ. Be careful. Dangerous place to be. And yet, water still came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. You see, God still filled his thirsty people. We shouldn't measure our relationship with God based upon how he's using us in ministry. Because Judas, he was used in ministry. He ministered with Jesus for three years and we don't see any problems there. When we start thinking our relationship with God is all well and good because he's using us in the ministry, it's a dangerous place to be. Because God can use anyone. In Numbers 22, we'll see that he uses a donkey and he speaks through a donkey, right? We have to be so careful with this. God loves his people and he will still meet the needs of his people through foolish leadership. There's some people here at the church that they got saved by watching Benny Hinn on television, right? I wouldn't recommend anyone to watch Benny Hinn on television, right? But the Lord can use anyone and anything to bring us to him. The thing is that later on, he always calls the foolish leadership into his office. He always does that. And that's what the Lord does here. In verse 12, then the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron. So it seems like there's something going on in Aaron's heart as well. Because you did not believe me to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Seems a bit harsh, right? Seems a bit difficult. Moses' outburst here, it was rooted in a lack of faith in God or a lack of trust in God and in making God no longer look holy to his people. Moses' actions made God look no different or separate than any other pagan god. Because the way people approached pagan gods is that the pagan gods were angry with them and now they needed to appease the angry gods with gifts to appease them and protect them from the wrath of these gods. But this is not the heart of our God. Our God sent his only begotten son to absorb the wrath of justice that you and I deserve because of our sin. God is no longer this angry God up there. He will judge. He's a God of justice. But he's not this God of anger calling us, you rebels, right? Moses also, his sin was locked into him not believing that God would chastise this new generation of Israelites. He didn't have the faith that God would show them a lesson. So Moses thought he had to take it into his own hands and I'll show them a lesson here. Again, have to be careful. We need to be so very careful that we are not misrepresenting God. And that somehow or another we are messing with his view of holiness to this unholy people. 
We need to be reminded that our God is separate. He is different than everything out there. That's why we have to be so careful when we start saying sin is not really sin. You're making God no longer a holy God. You're making him just like the rest of the world. That, that's completely okay. That, that's completely okay. He's no longer a holy God. He's no longer separate from the rest of the world. We also have to be careful with our anger. And to all the men here, I believe this really hits home to us as fathers. Are we rightly representing God the Father to our children? Are we rightly representing God the Father to the other young men out here? Or do we have these outbursts of wrath, calling our kids, you rebels, right? And yet there's no love, there's no training, there's no discipline. We all know those men out there that they have this big bark and no bite. They explode emotions, anger, wrath, and yet they go and they sit on the couch and they do nothing just like every other day. We have to be so careful that we are not misrepresenting God the Father to our children and to the younger generation. Because there's many people today that have a tough time coming to God because God says that he is a perfect father. Because there are many people that had difficult fathers, bad example of fathers, sore spots of a father, and I pray that that would never be said of us. Finally, the best application here goes directly to church leadership. It goes to me, to all the pastors, all the overseers, right? God tells them, therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. There's a great warning here for pastors, for ministers, for Sunday school teachers, for worship leaders, for everyone that is up there, right, teaching God's people, we must know that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We are called to be at a higher standard. Finally, the biggest problem here with Moses is that Moses messed with a type and an example that God was laying out for the rest of eternity. He messed with a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done, the pain he went through, and the blessing that it brings to us. Again, what's the representation of the rock? Christ. It's Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4. That rock was Christ. And later on in John chapter 7 verse 37 through 39, here Jesus, he's here and he stands and he cries out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit. So Jesus is the rock, and Jesus also brings us that thirst-quenching power, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus saying that all men can come to him, and they will be filled with this living water. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 tells us that Jesus was offered once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12 of Hebrews 10, But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus, the rock, he was struck only once. He was to be struck only once. 
He was to be sacrificed only once and for all. And now after that, the way we approach the rock is to speak to him through faith. No longer does he need to be struck. No longer does he need to be sacrificed. Romans chapter 10, we can all turn there. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. How do we now approach the rock? How do we approach Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, verse 8 tells us, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto scriptures. For the scripture says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Again, from here on out, after Jesus dying once and for all for our sins, the way we approach him is by our speech met with faith. Our words attached to faith. This is how we approach Jesus. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Again, this is how we get to approach Jesus. Sacrificed once and for all, now we can come to him just by our speech. Again, we need to be careful. The key to this is don't mess with Jesus and be careful to misrepresent him and make him less holy, less different, less separate to the people around us. Back to Numbers 20, verse 13. It tells us this was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hollowed among them. So we know in verse 12, the warning, the condemnation here on Moses was that he did not hollow them. And yet in verse 13 it says, and he was hollowed among them. Right? What gives? You see, God at the end of the day will still be holy because he's holy, right? Be holy for I am holy. However, God revealed his holiness to the nation of Israel through his punishment on Moses. Instead of Moses' example and obedience to God. The same will be said for each and every one of our lives. And pay attention here because this is a hard lesson to learn. God will get all the glory in and through our lives. It will either be because of our chastening and punishment. Or it will be because of our obedience and example of Jesus Christ. One way brings a lot of joy. One way brings a lot of pain and problems, but God will still get all the glory. Now we go to verse 14. It tells us, Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice. And sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through the fields or the vineyards. We will not drink water from your wells. We will go along the king's highway. And we will not turn aside to the right or to the left until we've passed through your territory. It's a big promise here. There's two million people in this caravan. 
So they could totally wipe out a field or a vineyard. They could drink all the water out of the well. And yet, verse 18, Then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. You see, the Edomites, they come from Esau. And Esau was Jacob's brother. Jacob, we know he becomes Israel. Israel has the 12 sons, the 12 tribes. And Israel represents the spiritual man attached to God, right? Governed by God here. However, Esau represents our flesh. And Esau, the flesh, is more than willing to give up spiritual gifts and spiritual promises in order to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And there's no road to God's promised land through our flesh. There's no road there. To the promises that God has for you and I, it's never in and through our flesh. It's not through appeasing our flesh. It's not through doing what our flesh wants to do. More often than not, it's going against our flesh, against our desires. Right? Think about saving money. Do you save money by appeasing your flesh, by doing what your flesh wants to do? Do you lose weight by doing what your flesh wants to do? Right? No. Nobody feels like eating broccoli and chicken every single day, right? No, I feel like eating brownies and ice cream after service, right? Don't you? That's what we feel like doing, right? It's the same thing with being able to tap into the promises that God has for you and I. It's not going to happen through our flesh. It's not going to happen, oh, I feel like doing this. No, it's by being obedient to God's Spirit. Verse 19, so the children of Israel said to him, we will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with any men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now we see here the death of Aaron. And we talked about how whenever we approach a crisis, it reveals what's going on inside of our heart. You know, another way to see what's happening inside of our heart is not getting what we want. How do you respond when you don't get what you want, right? It's one of the best ways to see if your kids are really well-behaved kids or not. You give them everything they want, they're the best kids ever. You give them that two-letter word, no, right, right away. You see if they're well-behaved or not. And here we see Aaron, he's going to pass away. We don't see him kicking or screaming or cursing God. We don't see Moses kicking or screaming. or We don't see a, a word from Moses in him losing out on being able to go to the promised land. Now later on he'll sneak in, right? there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He sneaks in there with Elijah and Jesus and the disciples, right? But here at the death of Aaron, we don't see one word from these men serving the Lord. Because at the end of the day, they knew who they were and they knew who their identity was tied into. Verse 22, now the children of Israel... The whole congregation journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eliezer his son and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, his priestly robes here, that's what it's talking about, and now put them on Eliezer his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. It was his brother. It was his blood. Someone he served at least 40 years with. And yet at the end of the day, Moses obeyed the command of the Lord. 
What's our excuse for not obeying the command of the Lord? Family, friends, years attached to each other, blood. Again, at the end of the day, Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And now they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. Again, how bitter this must have been for Moses, his brother. And what a journey they've been through as brothers. Two slaves born into a cruel, cruel world. And yet, look what God can do. What God can do with two men who are saying, God, whatever you want from me, I'm down for the ride. God, whatever you want from me, Lord, whatever you command me, I will follow through no matter what happens. Again, so often people are afraid to have kids in the craziness of today. It's nothing compared to Egypt and Israel. Every baby boy that was born had to be thrown into the Nile River. Again, completely different. And yet we see what God was able to do in and through Moses. What a journey these two brothers have been through. Thinking about their time in Egypt. Thinking about being in Pharaoh's house. Thinking about throwing down the rod. Moses being afraid of the snake the first time, right? All that they've been through. Maybe Aaron there on his deathbed says, Mo, I got to tell you, bro. When I threw the gold in there, that cow didn't just pop out of there, man. That's not really what happened. I got to tell you the truth. I built that thing, right? We don't know. And yet how bittersweet for Aaron. Aaron, he knows he's going to heaven. He knows he's going into the presence of God. Maybe he's asking Moses, what is it like to be in his presence, right? And yet the last thing Aaron sees is his son being able to wear the priestly garments. And there again, you see the grace of our God. God doesn't strike them both dead there. God doesn't swallow up the earth and swallow these two men whole. God deals with them privately. The whole nation knows what's going on and why, what's happening to them, but how the Lord deals with them with so much grace and mercy. The whole congregation mourns for Aaron for 30 days. Now we come to Numbers 21. It says, Then the king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. We see some difference in this younger generation. The older generation, after they sinned and messed up and didn't go into the promised land, they just, in their own stubbornness, didn't even ask God for permission, and they went and tried to fight for the promised land, and many of them died and perished. This younger generation, when they see battle, when they see pain and problems, they begin to ask and plead with God. They make a vow instead of trying to do it in their own strength. And just as we see the difference between them and their parents, we see so many similarities here. Now in verse 4 through 6. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. 
So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. We see they became very discouraged because Edom, that was the fast track, the easy track of where they wanted to go. But because Edom, again representing the flesh, said you can't get through here to get to the promised land. Now they had to go the long way around. And now they're tired. They're discouraged that they have to take the long way around. We see them acting just like their parents. However, it gets a little bit worse. Their parents, whenever they complained, they would always complain against Moses. Here we see them speaking not only against Moses, but they spoke against God himself And that's the danger here. The problem with the younger generation is that it seems like they're losing the fear of the Lord. They don't have that same fear of God. They're complaining to God and to Moses. And what's their complaint? That there's no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. No food and water. Was that the truth? They're complaining about the bread. There's food on the table, right? You see the problem with the young Israelites here? It's all of our same problem. We open the fridge and we say, man, there's nothing to eat in here, right? The fridge is full. It's just what my flesh is desiring and craving that I haven't had or I think I haven't had. That's exactly what I want. It's not in this fridge, right? That's the problem here. And so often our complaint is not because we don't have food. It's not because we don't have water. It's not because we don't have shelter. It's just there's something else on our menu that we don't currently have. And that's what stirs up our complaint. That stirs up our murmuring against God. He provides for us. He cares for us. The righteous will never go begging for bread, right? That'll never happen. He's never going to forsake us. However, we begin to whine and complain about this worthless bread. This worthless bread is the manna being poured out every day. This rock, which is Christ, is following them every day and pouring out water for them. And yet they're complaining about the food of angels. This is what they're complaining about. In the beginning, they were blessed by it. In the beginning, someone was trying to heap up as much as they could, even though it would go bad every day. And yet they begin to complain at the same menu over and over and over again. So what does God do? God is more than capable of dealing with this younger generation just like he dealt with their parents. He's able to deal with them. God sends these fiery serpents. He sends these venomous serpents out there. And many of the people of Israel die. They're getting bit by the serpents. Then verse 7, therefore the people came to Moses. They changed their tune very quickly, right? We have sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prays for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. And set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bidden, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, so that it was if a serpent had bidden anyone. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now does this make any sense whatsoever? You're sick, you're dying, the venom is coursing through your veins, it's eating at your arteries, it's eating at everything, your leg is turning black. You got anti-venom, you got the hospital, can you call 911? Nah, man, just, just look at the bronze serpent. Just look at the bronze serpent there. And this story may seem so strange to us, and yet such a picture of Jesus Christ, that this is the exact picture Jesus Christ uses when he's speaking with Nicodemus. We could turn there in John chapter 3, and what a way to come into communion. What a reminder are we looking at the cross Look at the cross and you'll live. 
Look at the cross and you'll live. Whatever difficulty you're going through in your life, whatever sin you're going through in your life, whatever anxiety, fear, depression you're going through in your life, look to the cross and live. John chapter 3 verse 14. Jesus, he's here. He's speaking with Nicodemus, one of the chief Pharisees here. And he tells him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Family, when was the last time you looked to the cross? You meditated on the cross. That is to continually look at the cross each and every day for minutes and hours and days and weeks. Are you looking at the Son of Man being lifted up because of us, because of our sin? Why were the snakes sent out? Because of the sins of the people. They were reaping what they had sown in their sin, in their complaint towards God. And so many of us, we are reaping our sin. And what's the wages of sin? It is death. But are we looking at the cross? Are we considering what the cross represents? The perfect Son of God dying for you and I. Living perfectly in this world. Doing nothing wrong. He's the Son of God and yet He wasn't born into a palace. He wasn't born as a millionaire. He wasn't born in 2020 with air conditioning. He was born in the middle of nowhere in Bethlehem. Probably in a cave. Laying in a feeding trough. For you and I, have we considered the cross? Are we looking to the cross? Let's turn to Isaiah 45. And this scripture, I reference Charles Spurgeon a lot. Probably one of my favorite old-time preachers. And this is the very scripture that struck him in his heart that he would come to the Lord. He was attending the same church over and over and over again. It was a pretty liberal church. And one day there was a terrible snowstorm. And he attends this small, tiny church. And it wasn't even the main pastor teaching. It was another pastor preaching on Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 21, it tells us, Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Again, what does the Lord say there? Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, look to the cross. Look to Jesus Christ. Again, this bronze servant, it speaks of evil, but it speaks of evil being judged. 
bronze, the metal bronze, spoke of God's judgment. And God's judgment was poured out on Jesus Christ for your sin and for mine. God has dealt with evil. He's dealt with the evil inside of each and every one of us in order to save us, in order to bring us to him. 